Welcome, everybody, to episode 29. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Kinnat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, what up, my man? Oh, I'm good. I'm a little under the weather. I'm not sure what's going on. It's that October transition, I guess. Uh, but Oh, um, yeah, you got that nice voice, that deep, scratch, like crispy yeah, voice going down. Back of the throat's not doing too hot, but I'm... I'm pumping through this podcast. That's We're still for sure. here to bring you the podcast. Uh, yeah, that's man, right. it's it's really nice though. It has a little bit of rainy, but it's been actual beautiful fall. How's the city in fall? I miss New York City in fall. You visit uh, in there, and when you work in there in the days, you know, I haven't seen a tree change or that many trees in general. So I <laughs> it hasn't really changed that much. <laughs> I guess there you go. Yeah. Um. So we got a bunch of things uh, to do. So. Let's start. I'm trying to figure out where we should start. So we should start with the the name of the episode, which was the Brain Science Podcast, or the, I should say the Brain Podcast. And the reason why it is the Brain Podcast episode is because we have the host of the Brain Science Podcast, Dr. Ginger Campbell, joining us today. A little departure from the pure STEM cell uh, world, but um, it's a cool podcast. And we like to, since we're in the podcast game, we like to bring other podcasting hosts uh we would like to bring more on and, and let you hear what they're talking about it's a cool show right yo so she'll come on and yeah tell us we about do it. this from time to time we'll get back to the scientists maybe some big wigs coming up soon right yeah i hope yeah, so we'll, we, we'll talk about that in a minute i think i landed a, uh, a big fish for us so yeah. um like i said we are the stem cell podcast we are the official podcast of the isscr international society for stem cell research check them out isscr.org um Let's see. Um, we and so now, in saying that, we just basically redid our website. Yo, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah, they did a good job. Yeah, so they redid our website. Um, it reflects uh, that our, our affiliation there with the ISSCR right on the banner. It's a cool new banner. It's a cool new looking site, but it has some new things. So if you when you go on to stemcellpodcast.com, right on the homepage, there there's a space for you to enter your name and your email address. And so you everybody should go on there and do that. What happens is when we have a new show. Yosef and I put all the paper links up. Um, you'll get emailed uh, that information. So basically, it'll email you the show, the show notes and everything, and you'll get an email with all the links. So it's one way we're trying to make your life easier. You can basically just open up your inbox, email will be there. You click on it, you go there, you can listen to the show and link to all the papers you talk about. So go on and sign up for that. And then we got this thing I was telling you about last time called SpeakPipe. If you go on stemcellpodcast.com on the right side, it says uh, send a voicemail. If you just click on it and press record, you just talk into your computer and you can leave Yosef and I uh, a message. You know, hey guys, I'm really interested in talking about, you know, hearing about this or this is great. Just any feedback. Send we can, us a rant. We want some more yeah, rants. Yeah, rants. Oh man, send us some rants and go yeah. get fired up. We'll put it, we can take a clip and we can put it on the show. You know, I think um, scientists make the best haters. So uh, send us some, some nice do. hater material. They you got your PhDs, do. your player hater degrees, send it to us. Send it all to us. So that's at stemcellpodcast.com. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about some papers, but I, I want to mention here before we get started, too, um, in terms of meetings, ISSCR does these regional forums, Yosef. They did one last year. I think it was in Florence. Then they're doing one again in Singapore. Um, and they got a good lineup. Um, one of the papers we'll talk about tonight uh, uh, is from his lab as a speaker there. Um, you ever been to Singapore, Yosef? I've never no, been that no, far. I'm, yeah, I've uh, read about it. They, they're really big on the technology over there. Really big on the technology. And that 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 that, that is November 5th to the 7th. And I think um, the advanced registration ends October 21st. So go go check it out. Go to ISSCR.org. Check that out. It's a cool 
uh, smaller conference, which you can network a little better. They got Rudy there, Rudy Yanish, Jenna Rasan, uh, Rick Young. So there's go very check that few out. things I know about Singapore uh, besides the being bullish on science is that you can't hold hands in public or uh, you know spit gum on the sidewalk. Really? Yeah. I like they, to do those at the same time. I like to hold people's <laughs> hands and spit gum. So I guess don't I do can't. that there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, let's see what. Uh, oh, so. I found that I was nominated for Stem Cell Person of the Year, which I'm humbled to say that's an amazing thing. I look at these people, no, Yosef, that are in the list, and these people are like, you know, they've done so much. So for me to be in that list, that's pretty awesome. Uh, but so now that I'm there, um, we should just go out and vote. Get the Stem Cell Podcast some some more recognition. Let's everybody go to so, to do this. So this was by Paul Knopfler. You know, we had him on a couple yep. times. Like blog, stem, cell, stem cell researcher and stem cell blogger extraordinaire. Um, his blog's at IPSL.com, and so he's hosting the vote there. So to make it easy for everybody, if you just go to StemCellPodcast.com backslash vote, you can go there and just vote for me. For the, and, and, and in doing so, for the top 12 people on that list, um, it's the top 10, 12 people they'll send to be finalists, and I think Paul has some sort of uh, – you know, mechanism where it chooses the winner. So it's great for the podcast to get recognition. So everybody who's, if you're a fan of the show, go to stemcellpodcast.com backslash vote and vote for, uh, vote let's for me. Let's get you into first place. Yeah. Man, let's knock me out of the park. Let's, let's yeah. get, let's get I, real here. I know let's you're, uh, you're, you know, it's you and Robert Lanza right now, neck and neck. So that's, yeah, big, uh, big we, Bob we Lanza. Come on. We can, we can, we can down, shoot past him, everyone take, out there. You can vote the every single day, once a day, every day to the 22nd. So, Make a party of coffee, Chris and coffee. That's that's my new campaign. <laughs> nice. Has, hashtag Chris and coffee. Um, all right. So that was a bunch of business. Um, are, did we get everything? I mean, what did we? Did we miss something? Yeah. No, that's it. Uh, should I hit up the roundup or let's, what? Uh, let's go to the roundup. That that is that is like awesomely sponsored by uh, Thermo Fisher Life Technologies. Who, Yosef? Did you make your talk for the twenty four hour stem cell event yet? Uh, I have to actually scale it down because uh, I want to be in that twenty minute range. Yeah, Yosef and I are both giving talks at the uh, twenty four hour of stem cell virtual event. It's an, it's a really cool all day, all night stem cell like stem cells. All it's like a marathon of stem cells. Um, if you're interested in, to register, which I think you should, you guys can hear about more what we do and other stem cell researchers. It's all on the website, stemcellpodcast.com. You'll see the banner there. Click on through. So let's uh, let's bring to you the roundup. Yos, give right. it a shot, my man. Now, let's I'm going to start off with a little bit of a controversial. I don't know if it's controversial. Ah. So there's, you know, doing this roundup, I never knew there were so many journals out there. But uh, so <laughs> this one's really called is. the journal. It's called Resuscitation is the journal. And they found that they did four years of studying this phenomenon where nearly 40% of heart attack patients describe being aware of uh, being being aware of their surroundings after being clinically diagnosed as dead. So um, you can find that there. There's some compelling uh, accounts there. But what? Yeah, man. Like the headline was like, scientists find proof of life after death or some sort of signs of it. But, you know, that's a just a... Uh, you know, a headline grabber, an eye grabbing headline. But uh, it's interesting that, pe- that so many people actually report this phenomenon. So uh, you can find a more, you know, uh, comprehensive look at that phenomenon there. Resuscitation, so, the Journal of Resuscitation. Yeah, there was a journal called Drug Testing and Analysis that found that AMP citrate, which is uh, a supplement in these workout, uh, you know, these, I'm sorry, uh, these diet like workout. Uh, shakes 
Uh, so it, basically, they found that this supplement carries a risk for heart attacks, seizures, and neurological conditions. So steer clear of AMP citrate. <laughs> I don't know if, AMP uh, citrate. Yeah, AMP citrate. So stay away from that. It's uh, one of these supplements. Um, there was a nature communication study showing that nighttime is the best time for cancer to spread. Uh, they looked at EGF uh, receptor, epidermal growth factor receptor, uh, for which you know is in general for growth and migration of cells, including cancer cells, and the glucocorticoid receptor, this, which is the stress hormone. So looking at those two genes, they found that uh, EGF receptor is more active during sleep and glucocorticoids are more active uh, it, when um, mice, in this case, were awake. And so they used the anti-EGF receptor drug called lapatinib and they found that it was more effective in uh, uh, reducing cancer growth at night when delivered at night. So really? most cancer drugs are given during the day, you know, in a hospital setting. So uh, they might have to start changing that regimen. Um, Interesting. I know, right? You never think, you know, when's a good time to deliver a cancer drug. So uh, you can find that over in Nature Communications uh, that just came out today, I think. Um, there was a journal... There's a journal called Hippocampus, which is... Yeah, there is. I think that's awesome. Is there one for amygdala? You know, <laughs> I guess there should be, right? <laughs> Every region has uh, Maybe they're journal. too afraid to do it. Anyhow, so studying rats, they found that adolescents are an increased risk of suffering negative health effects from sh uh, sugars, uh, you know, the high fructose corn syrup, like the highly sugared sweet beverages. Um, they found in rats that they experienced memory problems and bring... Um, uh, and became pre-diabetic. So uh, it, it didn't happen in adult rats. So uh, don't let your adolescents drink, you know, too much of this uh, highly sugary drinks. Mm. Yeah, so you can find that in Hippocampus. There was a science article uh, that discovered that water on the planet Earth may have come from a time one million years before the birth of our sun. So it's kind of... You know, it's like, where did water come from on the earth? And apparently the science article says it happened even before the formation of our solar system. So, um, dude, how does one even attempt to find out where water comes they from? They looked at like deuterium and tritium and like the, the, the ratios and found that basically our water is really old water compared to like, uh, other theories of it did it form after or before the formation of both the earth and the sun. So um, you can find that in science. Excuse me, still a under the weather. Uh, real quick shout out to the uh, Nobel Prize. I, lo I love this. This is like the Oscars for science. Yeah, and they just, I love it. There's no like live TV or They should have like a red carpet where these guys get out, you know? Uh, yeah, it's just sort of like pops up on the news one day. You're like, oh, I didn't even know today was... Oscar Delivery Day. So there was uh, the Physiology uh, or Medicine uh, Prize awarded to John O'Keefe, May Britt Moser, and Edward Moser for uh, the Brain's Inner GPS System or Place Cells. There was uh, the Physics one that went to Isamu Akasaki and Hiroshi Amano and Shuji Nakamura for blue LED lights, which uh, I, th I didn't know this, but that was like the hardest LED to make. They had already made red and green, but when they got the blue, they were able to combine the three together 
to make white lights and uh, basically 25% of energy use in the world is for like incandescent lights, which is more heat than light. So uh, by creating this white LED lights, they were able to reduce Damn, energy consumption. So cool. And I, you know, I didn't know this, that they're so quick, these LEDs that like, you, you know, that thin strip of red light uh, for brake lights uh, on the top of a car, not the top, but like above, uh, like New York City cat taxis all have it. It's like on above your backlights, um, like on the top of your back window, that light is quicker than the other lights and that can when you're going 60 miles per hour and you have to stop uh really quickly it to somebody in front of you that could save you three meters on average uh the difference in time uh with the quicker led lights so saving lives as well uh so i, I thought that was cool wow that uh, is real cool yeah and then finally the chemistry uh prize to eric betzig stefan Hell <laughs> and William Mod, uh, William, it must be Mod, I must have spelt it wrong, but I guess William Modern for inventing a way to circumvent Abe's resolution limit in microscopes, uh, but which basically said that, uh, one could not discern features smaller than about half the wavelength of the light used by the scope. So they figured out a way around that and, uh, deserved the Nobel Prize. Oh, excuse me again. There was a journal of leukocyte biology study showing that the lungs become more inflammatory with age and that ibuprofen can lower that inflammation. Basically, the researchers compared lungs from old and young mice and found in old mice genes that make three classic pro-inflammatory proteins or cytokines are more active in old mice, including IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha. They also found that macrophages in the lungs of old mice were in a state of readiness. They were ready to fight infection and they exposed uh, the mouse of, um, of the old um, the macrophages to TB and the macrophages from the old mice uh, lungs were quicker to absorb the bacteria and this like initial robust immune response is not sustained over time so after two weeks of ibuprofen they were able to basically make the lungs act like younger mice and um, so the pro-inflammatory cytokines came back to regular levels and the macrophages were no longer super amped. They were, they acted like, yeah, they were like acting like normal. So you can find that in the journal of leukocyte biology. How many journals are there? Probably like 6,000. I have no idea. (laughs) I've heard a number and I think it's, it's definitely in the thousands, but you know, I'm surprised there's more than 800 to be honest. But, um, there's a PLOS one study showing that it's possible to predict abstract judgments from the brain waves of people, even though people are not conscious of conscious of uh, making such judgments. They use uh, they analyzed brain waves via EEG, and they were able to predict how excited a participant found a particular image to be, and whether the image made them think more about the future or the present. So they could, you know see their thoughts before they were even conscious of their thoughts. So wow. you can find that in PLOS. There was a food and bioprocesses, uh, bioprocess technology study where uh, scientists applied pulsed ultraviolet light, uh, reduced allergens from 80% of peanuts. So uh, the 
uh, if allergens can be cut from 150 milligrams of protein per peanut to 1.5 milligrams, uh, 95% of people would be cool with that, who have allergies would be fine with eating it. So uh, I know this roughly 2 million U.S. residents have peanut aller- allergies and uh, that using the pulsating light system here, they were able to like concentrate uh, bursts of light to modify the peanut allergenic proteins. And uh, you can find that in food and bioprocess technology. Do you have a uh, peanut allergies? No, I don't. My kid doesn't either. That was always the scary part. Like um, the first time we were going to give him peanut butter, we didn't know what to do, like, <laughs> how, to, how to like break <laughs> They say to like rub some on their face or like on their skin because they can have a, like a mild rash. Yeah, and that's like an indicator. It's also you know? important uh, when uh, the, the mother's breastfeeding to expose them to the allergens the beforehand. Nuts, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was a nature study using high resolution map from Grail data on the moon showing that gravity abnormalities uh, on the moon, which they view as part of a lunar magma plumbing system that created the rift valleys and rectangular features that make up the Oceanus. Procellarium Basin or the man on the moon. So you can find that in nature. So they discovered how the man on the moon got there. Man um, on the moon. <laughs> I know that's a great song. Uh, European Space, Age, Space Agency announced uh, that West Antarctica lost so much ice between 2009 and 2012 that the gravity field over that region dipped. How messed up is that? Oh. <laughs> I know. Man. This global warming thing. Anyhow, uh, PLOS one study in older adults finding that uh, they were uh, able to. So when you lose your sense of uh, smell in older adults, this was a strong indicator of death within five years. Thirty nine percent of the study subjects who failed a simple smelling test died during that period. Compared to nineteen percent with moderate sense of smell and ten percent with a healthy sense of smell during their you know time period, so uh, this was a better loss of smell was a better predictor than being diagnosed with heart failure, cancer, or lung disease. So only severe liver damage was more a more powerful predictor of death. So the olfactory you know the olfactory nerve is. Uh, the only cranial nerve di- directly exposed to the environment, so maybe that's the link. But uh, hopefully, you know, if you're old, you keep your sense of smell. <laughs> there was an active physiologica study showing that uh, an intense workout of at least of as little as 20 minutes can enhance episodic memory by about 10 percent in uh, healthy young adults. So uh, keep doing that workout. Uh, and a uh, participant lifted weights just once two days before the test, and they had this, you know, 10% boost in uh, memory, episodic memory. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, FACEB journal study showing that white blood cells exposed to UV light and agar uh, to induce DNA damage can predi- predict uh, risk for cancer. So uh, this may be a new cancer test. Uh, it's called lymphocyte genome sensitivity test. And the ultraviolet light in agar uh, causes DNA pieces to get pulled towards their uh, positive electric field that they expose them to. And so they had this like comet-like tail. And uh, the longer tail, the more damage and the you know more uh, predictor for uh, risk for cancer. 
uh, there was a current biology study of uh, twitches during the REM sleep are different are different kind of movement uh, in the brain when awake. So the brain is unaware that they are being self-generated and twitches lack a corollary discharge message sent to the brain so that we, re- we, we can uh, recognize them as our own movements. So they aren't filtered out like our awake movements. So this corollary discharge is essentially suspended during sleep. I don't know. Do you twitch during your sleep? Um, I don't know. I've been told I really don't. I don't ever like to discharge. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I don't like to have a corollary discharge when I'm sleeping. Um, yeah. But is that what it is? Is that what they say? It's corollary discharge? That's yeah, what, that's what, that's the... Like- uh, the it, burst that leads you to do that? No, it's that corollary. Yeah, in the brain that is. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Um, do you twitch in your sleep? Do you I, have I, a discharge of I'd any like sort? To, yeah, I'd like, I may yeah, have yeah, had a, a little, discharge little of my sleep there, over little, the years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Some people got a real dramatic. Like, you know, in their sleep, they'll, like, kick you right out of the bed. Dude, there's a thing called the RBD, REM uh, Sleep Behavior Disorder, that, like, 50% of those people go on to develop Parkinson's. It's a crazy one of the Whoa. predictors. Yeah, it's there's some connection there. It's Damn. crazy. Yeah, and these people, like, have dreams that they're boxing and beat up their wives in their sleep. It's just, like, crazy stuff. Um it could be a problem. <laughs> uh, multiple, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, there was an alcoholism clinical and experimental research study that found that sensation from uh, sampled uh, how people sense alcohol varies as a function of genetics, specifically two bitter taste receptor genes uh, called TAS2R13 and TAS2. R38 and one burn receptor gene called trip V1. Um, so you may be an alcoholic as a function of, you know, how you taste it. Um, and then there was also a stem cell research and therapy article found that a compound in turmeric, uh, could encourage the growth of, uh, new nerve cells in the brain. They used aromatic tumorone, was injected in rat brains and used in neural stem cell cultures where the compound boosted the proliferation of fetal neural stem cells up to 80% and increased the speed at which they matured. So uh, you can find that over in stem cell research. Uh, there was multiple sclerosis and related disorder studies showing that patients were able to safely tolerate treatment with cells cultured from human placental tissue. Uh, these cells are called PDA001 cells, resemble, and they resemble uh, stromal cells, mesenchymal stromal cells found in connective tissue and bone marrow. And the cells are numerous in the placenta. The study was conducted on 16 patients, 10 with relapsing remitting uh, MS, and 6 with the worsening disability called secondary progressive MS. So uh, it's good news. They, they tolerated the cells. Um, and finally, I'm going to end with an article in science suggests, oh no, I already talked about the, the, the water on the planet being more than 4.6 billion yeah, years did. old. So that's it for me, man. What do you got? All right. What do I got? Well, I got, let's see, let me start here by saying, uh, my first thing I put on the list was, uh, the, uh, stem person of the year. We talked about that. Go and vote. 
stemcellpodcast.com backslash vote. Um, I, you know, we had, um, was it Karen Weintraub on? She talked about that piece she wrote in the New York Times. And in it, she mentioned this crazy stat about like, uh, uh, clinical trials going on with stem cells. Um, and then there was a number on there and the number was being disputed. Some people were saying it was way too high. I mean, if you search the database clinical trials dot clinical clinical trials dot gov i think it is and you type in stem cells it generates like 4500 clinical trials but i think uh you know how people use the word stem cell in their thing and it's really not so i anyway point being though um the, all the stuff i've been reading has been suggesting that there are uh, there's been a definite increase in the number of clinical trials or at least stem cells uh, treatments going into the clinic. There yeah, I'm an sure article. some of those are like, oh, rub this cream on your head and it um, will induce yeah, a follicular stem cell. I don't know if that counts. I don't know if a cream, like anything cosmetic, but if it's some sort of medical, you know, has to do with some sort of medical or clinical, uh, then it would go into that heading. But this was an article. It was a biotech journal. Um, it, was, it was saying stem cell treatments surging into the clinic. And this comes, this article comes on the heels of the, uh, there you have this meeting out in La Jolla. You see La Jolla, right? I love mm-hmm. to say La Jolla, even though it's not it, but I want to say it every time I see it. Um, there's a meeting out there. It's called the Stem Cell Meeting on the Mesa. And they have a meeting of, uh, it's, um, you know, investors. Ste- and everything stem cell from them, really from the business, a lot of business. It brings together business and academic worlds of cell therapy. And you know, a lot of people get up there and they talk about their product. Um, and um, they're saying that, you know, they were talking about how there's been this major proliferation of, uh, no pun intended, of these cl- clinical mm-hmm. trials. In California alone, did you know that they have 131 clinical trials are taking place with stem cells? Um, and conditions range from retinal disease, HIV, leukemia, sickle cell disease, stroke, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and this article just goes on to quote some people like um, uh, Dr. Loring, who's a very big uh, stem cell uh, biologist. It's been a sea, ch- sea change from last year. Um, so in other words, there's a lot more um, saying here that um, the same thing, that there's been this just rapid proliferation of trials. Then they highlighted, which I thought is cool, the Viacite trial. So the Viacite, um, San Diego's based Viacite, they gained federal approval to test their treatment for type 1 diabetes. And there was a, like a landmark paper published, I think, today on from Doug Melton's group. We'll talk about it in a minute on, on, on a way, a possible cure, or that's what they're saying, a cure for type 1 diabetes. But this company is scheduled to treat the first patient um, in San Diego in a few weeks. Basically, what they have is they have this device um, that contains pancreatic islets. Mm-hmm. And they put it in, and it's you know a source, or uh, basically a source of insulin. The progenitor cells are cultivated from human embryonic stem cells. So this was just an interesting article highlighting this meeting. But the, the take home was that the there's a much bigger push here of stem cells getting into the clinic, or at least on the way, or getting you know you know sniffing through the FDA. And we talked to people. Remember Yosef at ISSCR in Vancouver. I remember Sally. Sally Temple came on and she was saying how the whole meeting had like a different vibe. It was a very, um, very more translational kind of skewed thing, which which tells us that stem cells are in fact being uh, pushed out to the clinic. So this, this is all good, good news. Yeah. Um, along those lines, I read this in CNN, the first patient treated in the neural stem phase one spinal cord injury stem cell trial um, through UC San Diego was uh, was just treated last week. So these are human neural stem cells, and they were implanted as a, the treatment of chronic spinal cord injury. Um, the patient had a 
um, a complete like thoracic injury. So they they have complete paralysis with absolutely no motor or sensory function. Um, So um, this is a neural stem cell therapy. And the first trial, this was basically the first, it was a patient was injected and was just released. So they're going to obviously, we'll wait to hear the follow up on how that does. Um, This is from the Japan Times. The Waseda University said Tuesday it will strip uh, the embattled researcher Haruko Obakata of her doctorate unless she corrects the dissertation. Oh, so they went from they went from this 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 woman went from thesis to landmark paper to no paper to now no thesis. Hey, you know the story of Icarus. Fly too, too close, close, man. To the sun, you, you get those wings burn. So I mean that just be, continues to be could be a disaster. This was an awesome article in the New York Times. It was an op-ed. It was in an opinion page written by Andy Harris. I don't know if you saw this, Joe, but it's called "The Young, Brilliant, and Underfunded." Oh yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's an opinion piece on the state and the cluster F that is our NIH funding situation. I mean, um, so and it focuses on the younger investigators, and it's so brilliant. Um, it's, it's saying here that. Uh, every year, like NIH receives roughly thirty billion in federal funds to invest in biomedical research. Joseph, what is that of our budget, by the way? Thirty. How billion? much? Thirty. Thirty billion? billion out of a sixteen trillion dollar GDP. <laughs> um, you know, it's and and I think uh, it's like less than one percent. It's like one percent or something like that. Ridiculous. Yeah. Not even less. Oh man. Exactly. The point that I that I can't even figure it out means that the, the decimal's moving so far that it's that less. It's so so little anyway. But it's saying that the bulk of the money goes to researchers who are basically, in many cases, esteemed in their field, you know, and and also beyond the age where most scientists make their important contributions, which is the most thing. Think about it. You know, just like just like an athlete, you're in your you're inter, you're in your intellectual thought prime in your youth. You know, your brain gets old and your ability to create ideas goes down. And so what it's saying here is that the majority of the money being spent are on people well past their prime or already made their significant contributions. Um, so this was the, something that came out of this article. It said a study of the National Bureau of Economic Research from 2005 examined the age at which over 2,000 Nobel Prize winners and other notable scientists uh, came up with the idea that led to their breakthrough. Most were between 35 and 39 when they came up with the idea. Nice. The median age of first-time recipients of an R01, which is basically the biggest granted NIH that an average researcher gets, is 42. 42. And the median age of all recipients is 52. And more people over 65 are funded than those at under the age of 35. Oh, that's a horrible stat right there. So just think about that. The government is give, of that thirty billion. It's giving more money to people over sixty-five than it is in the prime of their career, and and so they they, they go on to talk about like over the history what has happened, and um, they say that a lot of advocates claim that if you just give give it more money, the funds available to young researchers will grow, but this says that um, from the fiscal year 1999 to 2003 the NIH doubled the budget from 13.6 billion to 27 billion and the percentage of grants going to first time recipients under 36 dropped to 1.3% from 5%. So even when the even when the budget doubled the percent of young investigators getting grants actually decreased. Uh, so what's going on how can we correct this? 
it goes on to talk about a little bit of, of ways, but I don't know, Yost. This is, just, this is a disaster. Not only are they cutting funds straight across the board, but the proportion that are going to younger scientists, the people that really should be getting money to really creative minds, and I, it's just not getting there. Um, yeah. And it's a major issue here. Major, major issue. Yeah, we will. Know, yeah, um, we we need to redouble we, that uh, NIH budget first of all. But this is a separate issue. I feel like. Um, how to foster young scientists? Um, so we're gonna we're we're gonna try or have and I, I've been talking to their people. And I think we're gonna do it. So Dr. Uh, Harold Varmus is coming to Albany, New York, to give a talk, and I contacted him, and he's willing to come on the show and do an interview. I'm in Albany, so I'm gonna go meet up with him. Yosef, we'll try to call Yosef in, and he was. So if everyone doesn't know Dr. Varmus, Harold Varmus is a Prize winner, the laureate for uh, oncogenes, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. In the Rouse and, and the sarcoma. And he, yep. He was the director of the National Institute of Health, and he was also he's currently now the director of the National Cancer Institute. So he knows this stuff. He knows the politics behind it. He knows the trends. He would be a great person to straight up ask, "Hey, what what the hell's going on here?" Uh, so if uh, if that if that comes through, that'll be a great show. So stay tuned for that because we can ask him, and we can have everyone in the audience send in your voicemails and emails to uh, to ask questions. I had the turmeric thing too, Yos. Um, let me move on. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard of this journal, man? It's called the um, wait, where is it? ACS Nano. No. Have you heard this? Okay. Success in creating induced pluripotent stem cells. So this Korean research team was the first to create these IPS, which don't use uh, uh, any of the reprogrammable factors. Mm-hmm. They use electromagnetic field. So they apply an electromagnetic radiation event to fibroblasts, and they get IPS colonies. No. 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 It's the weirdest thing. Yo, it's just the weirdest thing. I didn't read the paper at all. Um, and I'm looking at just like this real random cartoon. I don't know if it's any real deal or not. It was in the September 23rd issue of it. Somebody go check it out. Let us know if it's what the heck's going on here. I, but, you know, I listen uh, it to says a, it increases efficiency. A lecture once by a PhD about this uh, idea that there are electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic receptors on the cell, which is like, you know, how maybe some people can sense that people are watching them <laughs> you know like things like that like how like your thoughts can affect other people but it was it was a little hippy dippy you know but it, I, I don't know what the evidence is for electromagnetic receptors you know we obviously have trip receptors that could sense you know heat or mechanical receptors that you know sense touch but can you sense can cells sense electromagnetic waves that's i mean i guess if like homing pigeons can like sense the earth's magnet magnetic field um i i i just don't know enough about but can it affect gene transcription that's that's the question right there yeah i don't know this is like another stab right i mean like it's another type of like a triggered you know, pl- like acquired pluripotency event. It's not, but, but I, I don't know. I, I didn't read it. I, I maybe I will. I don't even know. I mean, if it's not, look, if it didn't get into a mainstream news or something like that, or it's not getting any buzz, then it must be buried for a reason. I don't really know. But anyway, that's in the AP ACS Nano. I don't know what that is, but go check that out. This is the paper that uh, just came out, made a lot of headlines. Um, this is by. Um, out of the lab of Dr. Doug Melton, the uh, Harvard Stem Cell Institute. 
Uh, actually, uh, Doug is going to give a talk at the ICCR 2015 in Sweden. So, and I'm sure he'll be pumping this thing. This is a land break, like land breaking, groundbreaking hmm. landmark study, at least I think. Um, and so, the Melton Lab has been trying to come up with a way to produce uh, insulin, so pancreatic islets that produce insulin for diabetes. Uh, Dr. Melton's uh, child or children uh, were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. He was, Doug was, Dr. Melton was a very, he established his career, Yost, doing early neurodevelopment, like early development stuff, like real, real, like seminal studies, and then switched over to diabetes when his children were diagnosed. That was about 23 years ago, and he has it now. Um, this is published in Cell, and um, the, it's... Uh, um, I don't actually have – I don't have the name uh, – I don't have the exact title, but um, you'll see it. It's everywhere in the news. Basically, what they were able to do is they were able to take human embryonic stem cells, create the islets, and they were able to progress them onto a mature islet that actually produces insulin. And when they put these in animals, they can challenge them with glucose and uh, the insulin the, – the, the islets actually respond, which is crazy. So they're, they're able to sense uh, the rise in glucose secrete out the insulin and start regulating um so type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune like condition causes the pancreas to stop producing insulin so the idea here is you put this in and it will allow uh for the body to now be able to sense and secrete and regulate sugar uh and if it can do that man this is like a like a like a tremendous tremendous uh yeah if anybody's going to cure diabetes i put him i put my money on him yeah, it's, that's pretty pretty awesome. Um, let's see. So, congrats to his group, this that Harvard Stem Cell Institute. This is Stem Cell Reports: Efficient Differentiation of Human Pluripotent Stem Cells to Endothelial Progenitors via the Small Small Molecule Activation of Guess What Pathway Yos Wind Signaling. Oh boy, <laughs> I knew you were going to say one. Um, so, uh, this is just a, 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 a basically a, de- a defined protocol to activate and differentiate. HPSCs, pluripotent stem cells, to the endothelium. I should. I'm going to see uh, Dale on this weekend, Doctor Dale on James. I'll ask him what's going on with this protocol here because that's what he does. Drives the endothelium. That's in stem cell reports. This was also in stem cell reports out of the uh, the, the lab of Harley Kornblum. Maternal inflammation contributes to brain overgrowth and autism associated behaviors through altered redox signaling in stem and progenitor cells. So this has been a hypothesis for a while that if, you, if, you, if you're pregnant and you go through an inflammatory event, it can have effects on the developing fetal brain and fetus. And so they actually caused inflammation to pregnant rodents and showed that the offspring um, had autistic-like behaviors. They also went on to show that it's associated with um, – you know, with with nitric oxide pathway and reactive oxygen species mTOR and things like this. So, a um, little more evidence to suggest that you gotta watch what goes down uh, during pregnancy. Plus one directed differentiation of ES cells using a bead based combinatorial screening method. Um, it's 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 uh, three I don't know three experiments comprising stepwise exposure of the cells, combinations of like all different types of like things uh, and allows you to uh, capture all different stages of differentiation and derivatives and things like this uh, plus one and then let's see lastly small molecules facilitate rapid and synchronous IPS generation um, and this is out of the lab of uh, Conrad Hodelinger 
This is in Nature Methods. I'm not sure if I talked about this last time, but um, I'm just bringing it up. Go check that out. Um, simple modification to the reprogramming protocol uh, and at a Conrad's lab at Harvard. So I will stop there so we can um, end and bring on the uh, bring on our guest. Okay, so our guest tonight, uh, we have a guest that's a little bit departure from the normal of stem, of the Stem Cell Podcast. Um, you know, everybody out there in our audience might know by now that Yosef and I are actually neuroscientists. Uh, we do stem cell biology. We are stem cell biologists. But we use stem cells really as a tool to study uh, neuroscience, neurodegenerative disorders, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. So um, we... You know, Yosef has has been a listener, and I have as well, of this podcast called the Brain Science Podcast, uh, and the creator and host of the show, Dr. Ginger Campbell, uh, joins us tonight. So, the Brain Science Podcast was launched uh, in 2006, and uh, it really is a really cool podcast talking about exploring recent discoveries in neuroscience and trying to really get to... Uh, how our brains really make us human or make us who we are. So, uh, Dr. Campbell, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. So, um, this is great for two neuroscientists who would just love to talk about neuroscience all day. So, before you know, we get a chance to dive in here, please introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and uh, kind of how you, how you came to the Brain Science Podcast. Okay, well, my name is uh, Dr. Ginger Campbell. I'm a physician. Um, for over 20 years, I've worked as an emergency physician in rural Alabama until the 1st of July when I started a fellowship in palliative care medicine. So I've gone from, you know, working really nice hours to working nine, almost 9 to 5, which is really uh, a big adjustment. But I'm loving it because I feel like I'm finally doing the part of medicine that I feel really most passionate about. I started the Brain Science Podcast really because, uh, well, it was sort of chance. I got exposed to podcasting early on, and I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to do a show about medicine because that would seem too much like work. And it took me about a year to come up with an idea, and I did a very short book review for another podcast, and it was a review of the book On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. This was in um, er, about the middle of 2006, and I realized that's it. If I did neuroscience, I would never run out of ideas. And I, why was I doing that? Well, I was... I came there from an interest in Eastern philosophy, which eventually led me to Western philosophy, which led me to back to neuroscience, which I really hadn't thought about since I was a grad student back in the late 70s when neuroscience meant giant glass electrodes and aplesia neurons, you know. <laughs> that was the last time I had even thought about it. But I was just reading about it because I'm something of an autodidact and I always like to learn new things and I'd gone through all these things and finally just got really passionate about neuroscience at the same time that I decided I wanted to get into podcasting. I also started another show at the same time called Books and Ideas because I felt that I wanted to be able to do other things besides neuroscience whenever I wanted. So I actually do have a second show that very few people seem to know about, but that has given me an opportunity to interview people that are a lot more diverse. So a little bit of a ham, and I'm a person who loves to share ideas and I think I'm good at explaining complex ideas and making them understandable to normal people. 
So I think that's the key to the success of the Brain Science Podcast. How, and that's really long, important in a field like neuroscience, which uh, even in, even as a neuroscientist, uh, the, the, the topics can be incredibly complex and often quite f- philosophical. Um, you know, uh, when you're talking about brain and mind and consciousness and things like this, um, so I, I, you have to have a knack for being able to, to, to break that down into, uh, into layman's terms. Um, so, so, okay. So you, the format then of the show is you interview, um, you know, neuroscientists or scientists and also authors. Is that correct? People who are maybe a combination of both that write about certain right. topics. Right, because when I first started, I actually didn't even imagine doing interviews. That sort of came along early on. But when I first started, my idea was to make a show for regular people, not scientists. I wanted to counteract all the superficial hype in the mainstream media with accurate information. And my idea was that there's a lot of great books out there, but most people don't have time to read them. So I was going to share some of the key ideas from the books that I was reading. Um, Then pretty early on, I discovered I had an opportunity to interview somebody for my Books and Ideas show. And after I did that, I realized, hey, that wasn't so hard. And so I started doing a mixture. In the first couple years when I was doing the show twice a month, I tended to alternate between book reviews and interviews. When I moved the format to once a month, uh, which is the way it's been for the last five or six years, I moved to mostly interviews. But I tend to focus on people who, scientists who have written books. I do this because it makes my research a little simpler uh, and it gives my listeners some place to go next. Okay, you thought that was interesting, you want to learn more, you know, okay, this is the book I can go and read. So uh, once in a while, I will interview a scientist who hasn't written a book, but that's actually relatively unusual. And also, by choosing scientists who have written books, I've sort of narrowed my field down to people with pretty good communication skills. Now, it's a monthly podcast, correct? So, uh Coming from a bi-weekly podcast, that, that's encouraging that you've been able to build a large audience uh, with a monthly podcast. Is that is that uh, a hindrance, or do you think it actually helps enrich the content uh, by by doing these? Well, I, I think because I do a long-form show, you know, my show is usually almost an hour. And what I discovered was people were having difficulty keeping up anyway, and they were doing binge listening. Mm. So killing myself to put out that many episodes was really counterproductive because people were beginning to feel like they were hopelessly behind and they would get discouraged. My download numbers didn't go down at all when I changed from twice a month to once a month, but you have to realize at that point I had been creating my show regularly for two years. So um, I think it's important. You know, I don't know whether you could succeed if you started out at once a month. It might be hard because you don't have any library. But you know, now I have over 110 episodes, and people still listen to the first ones, even though I've made them premium. So, with that kind of library, you know, if a person listens to an episode, they've got plenty to listen to in between. Excellent. Well, we're a quarter of the way there. We've got about 20. This will be our 29th episode. Uh, and I, I'd like to, you know, I was telling Chris before we started recording that I was an early adopter of the podcast. Um, 
And I don't know, sometimes you just like uh, don't sync your podcast and you lose all your feeds and I somehow managed to no longer have it subscribed in uh, my, my Pantheon. And uh, I, so I recently started listening again in preparation and I, I just want to highlight some of the the better ones that I've listened to recently, the Neurobiology 101 was just a great interview. I, I mean, just even, you know, some of the basic questions, like the difference between neuro, neurobiology and neuroscience, just like simple stuff like that, uh, that like, you know, people tend not to ask the, you, you know, these like starter questions. And uh, that was a great episode. Oh, that was the, the neurobiology for dummies episode. Yes. Is that right. Yes. Yeah. And that's an unusual episode because I have to admit that's not a book I would have probably picked except for the fact that I happen to be friends with the author. Hmm. <laughs> so that was just a good coincidence. Yeah. I've I really sort of gotten away from picking basic books because the first year I did a lot of basic books. And I would have burned out if I had stayed at that level, you know. So I've moved on to mostly doing academic um, press books that are a little bit more technical. Mm. Um, so, but although I do try to alternate the the content between really technical and more general audience oriented, and because I've learned from my, I have a really diverse audience. I don't know whether your show would fit this paradigm, but my audience ranges from. I've got one listener who's like a tattoo artist and another one who's a house painter, things like that. Huh. And then I have maybe 20% of my listeners are MDs or PhDs. So that's, you know, that, that, that makes for an interesting challenge. But what I've learned is the people that don't have science backgrounds, they really don't mind if they don't understand every little thing as long as you don't talk down to them. And they appreciate having enough explained that they can figure out what's going on. And then it really surprised me when I got actual neuroscientists like you listening to the show. That wasn't what I was expecting. But the most common thing that people write to me is they'll say, I enjoy hearing about what people are doing in other fields be besides the tiny niche I'm in. Because, you know, you're like, like you guys are in stem cells. That's really a pretty small niche. Um, if you consider neuroscience as a whole. So people really like to hear about what other people are doing, and that's when the jargon becomes a problem. And getting people to talk in normal language as if you didn't know anything helps everybody. And they say, the thing that makes me feel most satisfied is they say, you make me remember why it was I went into neuroscience in the first place, and that makes me feel really well, that's good. That's great. Yeah, you know, I really also enjoyed the interviews with Dr. John Raddy, is it, or Rady? Yeah, that interview actually was originally uh, aired back in um, 2008. 2008 yeah. And when I realized that doing my fellowship, I was going to have trouble putting out an episode every month, I decided I would try to take some of my best episodes and put them back out. And so I picked that one because even though it doesn't have the best sound, it's still my favorite, probably still my favorite episode of all time. Yeah, he's he's pretty awesome. I really enjoyed the stuff he said. You, you know, and even some of the like, I think he was talking about how the brain and the heart talk to each other, um, which I didn't realize that the heart releases this uh, molecule AMP and it talks to the brain and tells it to, you know, slow down and not, not, you know, keep you from being so hyped. And, uh, I just found the whole discussion, you know, just 
I'm always seeing the output, but you never get the input from the rest of the body. You know, the brain's always controlling things, but sometimes the organs talk back to the brain and it, it was just, it was just nice to visualize that and hear that sort of perspective. And you could just feel his, con- he was so enthusiastic. It was, it was coming through the headphones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm reading a book now called The War of the Soups and the Sparks. Have you heard of it? No, no. No, no I have not. Well, you, you want to get this book. It's several years old, but it's about the discovery and proof that neurotransmitters exist. And it's really fascinating how how hard it was f- for that idea to become accepted. Mm. The mm. evidence was there for a long time before it was considered proven. And it's really I, I'm only partway through this story, but it reminds me of of the issue of neuroplasticity. You remember? I, I guess you guys might be old enough to remember when we were told that you couldn't make new neurons. Yes. I mean, that's what I was taught in medical school. And if you look back, you can see that at least as early as the 60s, there was plenty of evidence that that Altman. wasn't true. Altman. But it didn't fit the paradigm, so it got ignored. It's, it's a good reminder of how human scientists are. Well, I, it also kind of went a little too far where uh, I think it was, uh, I forget her name, over at uh, Elizabeth Gould at Princeton had published a monkey paper saying that there was cortical neurogenesis and that you know, made a big splash, but it turned out uh, that may not have been true. I, there's definitely neurogenesis in the hippocampus and olfactory bulb, but there's not really much going on in the cortex that we could detect. But um, I know him and her and Pashko Rakish over at Yale had a little spat over this. Yeah. And uh, confocal microscopy became the norm in terms of double staining with BRDU and uh, neuronal markers in the cortex, but um, that's here nor there. Let's uh, let's let's. Yeah. So you know, I just thought I'd bring this up, Ginger, um, because I, I, you know, what I was doing before, just to, to to prepare for this a little bit is I was trying to connect some topics that you had you have talked about on your show and some of the topics we've talked about on our show. Um, so I I was flipping through some episodes and 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 you know, Yosef and I, like we mentioned, we do this rant where sometimes we 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 just we just kind of. Things that have bothered us in the moment, and we rant about it. One we did recently was about vaccinations. So we ranted about uh, this, this. There's these movements to not vaccinate, and especially this fear that had been brought down about uh, how vaccinations cause autism with that phony paper published in The Lancet and the whole yeah. movement by Jenny McCarthy. Uh, and I know that you had a little extra episode called Vaccines Save Lives. And you brought on a doctor there, Dr. Offit, I believe that was his name. Yes, I've actually interviewed him twice, but that Vaccines Save Lives was his first interview. Yeah. So, I mean, can you talk, talk a little bit about that, what you learned there? Talk a little bit more about that audience. Because Yosef and I, from the, from the side of neuroscientists, gave our opinion on it and about how vaccinations aren't something that you should just, you know, look past and just dismiss. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about what you've learned in talking to scientists there. Well, I would say what my biggest feelings on that come from the fact that I'm a physician and I went to medical school before the HIV or HIV vaccine, which is the main one that prevents um, men- the main cause of meningitis in small children. And I hate the idea of 
us going back to kids having little kids having meningitis. Now, most of the time, if they get do get meningitis, it's viral. That's not entirely true, but I mean, it's made a huge difference. I mean, pediatricians being trained now, you know, hardly you know ever see that, and that's part of the problem is people don't see these diseases anymore. Like measles, for example, mm. I had measles when I was a kid, and I vaguely remember being really, really sick. Uh, I think that was right before the measles vaccine came out. And people don't realize that kids die from these diseases. Mm. And that we're spoiled because we haven't seen these diseases in so long. And the thing that, if you were going to ask me to rant, my biggest rant is that when a parent decides not to vaccine not to vaccinate their kid, they're putting other people's kids at risk. Mm-hmm. You know, because vaccination really works because of herd immunity. You have to have a critical number of people immunized. That then prevents the disease from spreading and also protects those people who genuinely can't be vaccinated or aren't able to mount their own immunity. So it's selfish, 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 selfish. Not to have your kids. We got a little fired up rant by Dr. Campbell here. I love it. I love it. No, that's what we were saying too. You know, it's, you know, people think that, uh, you know, like just like you said, like, oh, well, these diseases are gone. You know, the vaccinations work. They're gone. So why do we need to keep vaccinating? I don't think they really truly understand the point. uh, Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like, you know, how like uh, cars used to come without seatbelts and now it's unthinkable to think about a, a car without a seatbelt and putting your child in a car without a seatbelt but it's even worse where if you're forgetful to put on your seatbelt or whatever you're not necessarily going to kill other people like with vaccines if you're not doing that you need, like you said you need the herd immunity the 95 percent critical threshold where 95% of the population has these vaccines. So it's even worse than forgetting to put on your seatbelt or, you know, getting used yeah, to it. In, in Dr. Offit's second book, and I'm gonna, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, so I'm going to look it up. Um, he actually has the story of, oh, yeah, it's called, um, it's called The Dangers of the Anti-Vaccine Movement. Mm. Um, and that's not the whole name of it. Let me see. Well, we recommended uh, the Nova special on this. I mean, sorry, I think it was Frontline did a show on this, or no, it was Nova. Sorry, Nova. Nova it was Nova. It who was did Nova, it. and I watched it. It was it was excellent. Uh, basically, they laid it out out there, um, both the all the science. Yep. It's called the main part of the book's name is "Deadly Choices: How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All," hmm. and in there he has. One story of a little girl who, you know, got, I can't remember right now which thing it was, but um, she was one of those people who suffered because other people decided not to get vaccinated. So it put a human face on it. Okay, so let's, here's another topic that's interesting that I think our, our audience would be interested in. And this is the idea of brain fitness, okay? Because brain fitness has actually become a, a, a business, a big business, you know, like luminosity. People see these commercials all the time. I have the app. I don't know, Yosef, if you have the luminosity app. There's two of them, right? Can, yeah, there's a different companies where you can, you do exercise for your brain. And brain fitness, really, I guess it's a, I guess it's a reflection of a hypothesis, really, that you can, uh, you know, that cognitive abilities can be maintained 
or uh, or maybe improve by exercising your brain. Like we would go to the gym and lift some weights. I'm a firm believer in that. I really do think that humans uh, and probably other animals underutilize or misutilize or don't really use their brains to the potential that we can. Um, so I, I know that you have done a couple episodes on this, and uh, and so please uh, talk a little bit about what you learned about brain fitness. Well, the biggest problem, it, the basic hypothesis, I think, is a good one. The problem is determining what kinds of exercises actually transfer over into real life. And I'm not really sure what the science basis of luminosity is. Um, I'm more familiar with Brain HQ just because I have interviewed Dr. Michael Merznick, who's deeply involved in that several times. And they do try to validate um, their exercises. But the biggest problem, like I said, is that it's easy to make exercises, but making ones that actually translate into the real world are difficult. When I interviewed um, the guy from Sharp Brains as a part of my 100th anniversary, 100th episode, he said that he thought um, that fitness right and brain fitness right now is where physical fitness was back in the 60s you know when there weren't very many people exercising but now it's you know the thing to do he thinks that that brain fitness will become like that and i think he's probably um, right. He, that was a website called Sharp Brains, which is a good one to check out because they sort of keep dra- keep track of you know what's being validated and what's you know just hype and that kind of thing. But the sharp, last time, is that sharp, sharp brains? Sharp, like, like a knife, sharp. Yeah, sharp okay. brains, one word. But uh, the last time I talked to Dr. Merzenich, which was only a few months ago, because he finally wrote it, he's actually one of the pioneers of brain plasticity. If you if you go do any research in reading on the original work in that area, you'll find his name mentioned. Mentioned Michael Merzenich. Anyway, um, uh, he. And he before that he did the cochlear one of the first cochlear implants which they really didn't think would work and turned out to work because the brain can turn those noisy cochlear implant signals into something meaningful. It's actually a demonstration of brain plasticity. But Dr. Mersnick is now in his seventies and he sort of practices what he preaches and he's finally written a book called Soft Wired and. In that book, he talks a lot about how you can make good ruts or bad ruts based on your brain plasticity. So if you just do less and less, and this is what a lot of older people do, they their life shrinks, you know, then your repertoire of what your brain will do shrinks. I, I, an example he gives is the kinds of things that older people do to prevent falls, like they start looking at their feet and walking, you know, with their gait further apart actually messes up their balance and makes them more likely to fall. Hmm. Uh, so in that in that instance, brain plasticity is sort of, um, the, that's the dark side because you're training your brain to do the wrong right. thing. He's actually, he actually says in his book that we need to walk less on flat surfaces and more on uneven surfaces so that we'll keep the ability to catch our um, self, you know, when we, of course, I don't think that would have helped me from breaking my arm because I slipped on the stairs. <laughs> All I can say is my bones aren't as young as they used to be. <laughs> That's like the old adage. Someone, you know, if you're trying to walk with a cup of water that was really full, they would say, the more you look at the cup while you walk, the more likely you're going to spill it. You should just kind of look ahead and walk. 
and you're more likely not to spill it. It's it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Now you know in brain fitness we can bring it to the world of stem cells because hand in hand with brain fitness becomes comes the, the idea of neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons, uh, really. And and stem cells really are at the heart or we would like to think, at the heart of neurogenesis. Absolutely. There was, there was a lot of a lot of research. And, Yosef, I remember going to neuroscience conferences and, and even at stem cell conferences for a long time. Everywhere you go, every poster I saw, not every poster, but a lot of posters I saw were things like exercise incre- you know, increases neurogenesis. Or, uh, yeah, I think you know, it, yeah, it was Fred Gage's lab that really sort of, brought it you know in the late 90s i think it was yeah uh, they had like mice running on the wheels yeah. you know and they would show that in these mice uh they would have increased neural neural density neurogenesis and things like this so again it goes to the idea of plasticity where you if you if you really push your brain and and you use it and kind of exercise it you can um you know kind of be plastic and maybe re-sprout and reconnect and now sprout and grow new neurons or have new neurons being born. Although this has been controversial in the human brain because there's been now evidence to suggest that neurogenesis in the adult brain and similar regions like the subventricular zone and such uh, don't really exist or not are really as important as they are in rodents because the rodent uh, that SVZ tract contributes to their olfactory neurons, which helps them smell, which you could imagine for a mouse would be a lot more important. But for us, um, we don't really uh, yeah, maintain we, that. So I know yeah, it's a, lot of, a little more controversial in human neurogenesis, although I will say, as a caveat, it's a little more difficult to get access to the human brain to investigate this. But it's a very, very cool topic, uh, plasticity I mean, in adult neurogenesis. Yeah. But I would like to emphasize that you can have plenty of plasticity without new neurons. Sure. Um, one of the pioneers in this area that I interviewed, Dr. Edward Taub, who is the founder of a, a stroke rehab method called constraint-induced movement therapy, which basically means that they, instead of trying to make the good arm stronger, they actually put the good arm in a sling and force the person to use the weak arm and they find that they get amazing results and the funny thing about his results is that he was having them for a long time when nobody would pay attention until they finally you know got MRIs sensitive enough that they could tell that there was changes on the MRI and then they believed it was real it didn't matter that the person was moving their arm you know that wasn't good enough they had to this is my rant Look at the patient. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many fascinating, like how they're curing uh, phantom limb syndrome now with these um, mirrors and training mm-hmm. people, you know, that they're, you know, training the brain essentially on um, recognizing that the arm isn't there actually. But I, I just want to switch topics before before we close here uh, because you do have a unique perspective. You're an a emergency uh, doctor, uh, uh, so well, were- I was until recently. I've, like I said, I'm now doing a fellowship in in palliative care, but I've done over 20 years of ER medicine. Okay, that's impressive, and I feel like saying, like they say to the soldiers, "Thank you for your service," because <laughs> <laughs> my mom Thank was you. an emergency room nurse, and she, you know, she's seen some crazy stuff there. So, um, but thank you for that. And w- one thing that, as as a woman in not necessarily science, but you know, obviously you have a scientific background, and in medicine. Uh, this 
idea that's been coming up, I noticed the BBC has a full week-long series on this idea of the male brain and the female brain. Is there such a thing? And I was just curious, uh, in the years of doing the podcast, have you... Uh, covered this? Have you? Do you have any opinions on? Uh, is there a male brain and a female brain? Is it genetics? Is it society enforcing you know pink onto girls and blue onto boys and Tonka trucks here and Barbies there or what? What what's going on there? That's that's a good question. I think that the differences are being exaggerated, and one of the problems is that it's impossible to sort out how much of that happens. I mean, you know that your brain um, becomes what it becomes based on what you do. And we start basically uh, teaching kids how to be people from the minute they're born. And part of that is how to be a boy or how to be a girl. So it's very hard to sort out what of these differences are really from being male or female or the results of the differences in their way that we're raised. I I don't know how we would sort this out, but there have been some excellent books written on this topic. And the bottom line is that in, in my opinion is this mostly exaggerated. It's kind of like the latest version of, you know, I'm a left brain person or I'm a right brain person. You guys are young, so you probably don't remember that one either, but you know, it's, People just like to glom onto these simple explanations for things. Yeah, I found it interesting that for this BBC series, they have two neuroscience uh, hosts. Are One you still o- there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm still here. Go ahead. Start yeah, here. so no, I was just saying that um, on this BBC series, they have two scientists uh, doing this series on the male and female brain. One's a um, a guy and one's a girl, and uh, what the the uh, the guy was saying that he came from. They had totally different opinions on this, and which is healthy. I feel like um, to have that you know informed perspective. Where the he was saying that his opinion was there are you know differences in terms of uh, estrogen exposure in the womb versus testosterone and how that affects the brain. Um, whereas the, uh, woman host had the opposite of, uh, opinion that it was mainly society, uh, imposing, uh, you know, certain things that discourage, uh, women and girls from going into, uh, things like physics and, you know, the hard sciences, not necessarily sciences, but mathematics majors, you know, they're like 5% and computer science majors, it's, it's barely breaking the 10% mark in terms of uh, choices for majors. And uh, so I, I just find it fascinating. And, you know, considering that you are uh, a woman who does this, uh, you know, studies the brain and knows everything there can be, uh, you know, over a hundred episodes. Um, I was just curious as to what you, where you came on well, the side of it. Well, I think the, the problem is, I, I think that there probably are differences the problem is determining exactly how much of it is caused by the difference in hormone exposure and how much of it is. It's, it's kind of one of those old nature versus nurture questions. Yep. It's very indirect. Really. And so, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to sort out how much of it is one or the other. Okay. And, of course, it has to be recognized that women um, 
you know, having fought so long for the right to be scientists and mathematicians and physicians, we have a motivation to not be different, you might say, because, you know, we don't really want them to go, oh, you can't do that because you're, you know, your estrogen won't let you, you know. <laughs> so, so everybody also has certain biases, but that's always true in science, no matter how much scientists would like to pretend it's not. Uh, just, to, just to close on this topic, I read, a, I read a book that I really enjoyed called The Female Brain. It was back in yeah. like 2008. By yeah, and I actually, I actually had that that author on my show early on. It's like Luann's, Dr. Luann yeah, somebody. She's a very it. good interview. She's a very good interview. And, I mean, she's coming at it from a, this helps, you know, this helps women. And she also wrote a book called The Male Brain, which was which was fun. I, I'm just not sure how how solid her science really well, is. Well, you know, it seemed a bit strong. It seemed almost like the book read like they had it all figured out, you know? Yeah. Like, like this is the reason why a female will discuss, you know, can, can you know, communicates more. It's exactly this. It just read, it read too story-like than it did scientific-y. And, yep. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was a good read, but it, that's what it was. It was a good read, and I, I think as a scientist, being a little more critical, uh, I'm sure it's – I, I shouldn't say sure – I think, and I know it's not that simple. So uh, I got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. If I was going to take any of my episodes and make them disappear, that would be the one. (laughs) Because I just don't think it is up to the science standards of the rest of my shows. Uh But I was early on. Uh, But I leave it in there because I think for editorial honesty, it's better to leave your warts showing too. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, it's definitely controversial and, um, there, I, and there are conflicting reports. I remember reading that there was lo- women on average have larger corpus callosums. Um, but apparently that's been also controversial too, that there's mixed reports on that as well. So I guess we're just going to have to, you know, keep the debate going. Sure. And what's the sample size at some point? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's this incredible var- like variability there. So yeah, who knows? But um, anyway, so for everybody out there uh, who, who, you know, whether you're in science, whether you're in neuroscience or stem cell science, Check out the Brain Science Podcast. You can go to brainsciencepodcast.com and and check out all of Dr. Campbell's. uh, You can read things that she talked about about herself. You can get a little see where the episodes listen to some, and she's on iTunes and probably Stitcher as well. You can find her on the major outlets. Um, She's got what now over what, Ginger? It was like 5 million downloads or something like this? Yeah, I actually haven't looked recently, so, but. It was five million at the end of last year, so I haven't been looking at my downloads. I'm not a stats freak, I have to admit. But but I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's an incredibly popular show, and for everyone, if you're interested in science at all, you, you'll you'll really enjoy it. So, uh, thanks for coming on and, and taking a departure from the norm and allowing us to interview you for a change. It was really oh, it fun. was great fun. Thanks a lot. No problem. So have a good night and good luck with the rest of uh, of the podcast and your new uh, your new fellowship there. Thank you very much. Okay, have a good night. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. All right, so we have like a real quick, quickie rant. We have like two minutes to rant. So we're going to rant tonight about the new iPhone. Yeah, iPhone 6, too big. I mean, like, uh, am I just getting old and I don't (laughs) want bigger things? But I don't. I don't want to get the new iPhone. No, I I don't want to get it. it. I have it, and it's just I. I mean. This is obviously, again, this is a high-class problem. But, you know, 
the the one that I have should have been the big one. I honestly think the 5S is their best model because it has the fingerprint technology and it has the slow motion video, which I think are cool options that the 6 has that the 5 doesn't, but the 5S has it. It's small. The camera's not that much different, but the screen is much better on the 6. I'll give them that. And the camera's a little bit better. But yeah, but it's like, it's like an iPad mini in my pocket. Yeah, like the, I just I, want a phone. I saw like, the. Why big has it got to be so big? Because I don't. I, the, I don't understand. And, and people don't realize, like guys, we wear this in our pockets, man. Oh, we women too. You know, women with these tight jeans are wearing. You know, how are you gonna fit in these smaller pockets? And I saw a guy eating dinner with uh, his girlfriend. He pulled out the the big iPhone, and I had never seen him person. It look. It, it is like talking into a piece of toast. This thing is huge, man. It's it's huge. I, I was looking at it like, wow, man, he's overcompensating for something. Yeah, man. that's for like- sure. If you got to get that big iPhone, man, you got you got some other issues deep yeah. because that thing isn't even like it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's the suburban of phones. I mean, it, people people just want to have bigger screens for their games and stuff like that. But I feel like there's a critical point where you should just use a different device. Just go to the computer at that point. Yeah, Steve Jobs is dead when the big, the small iPhone is bigger than all iPhones that have ever come out ever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, high class <laughs> problem is right. You know what I'm holding out for? I'm holding out for that Apple the i the iWatch. Have you seen this thing? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, those are pretty cool. Yeah, all right, I mean, that's I our rant. That's, so that's it. Let's, our uh, rant for tonight. Let's be done with it. Uh, thanks for the time, <laughs> Yost man. Enjoyed everyone. Go check it out. StemCellPodcast.com. We'll talk to you next time. All right, later.